Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we'll be continuing our look at the Battle of Mons. So let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for vile is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir sehen, wie uns Hörnchen weltumfangen Geistchen nur von gewinnen. At 8am on the 23rd of August, the Germans began to attack the railway bridges that crossed the Mons Condé Canal at Nimi, held by the 4th Royal Fusiliers, and at Obor, held by the 4th Middlesex. The Germans ran into the BEF's position with their 3rd and 4th Corps, who were to bear the brunt of the opening phases of the battle. While the BEF's 2nd Corps totaled around 36,000 men, the German assault was to fall on a few small detachments of men who were in the path that the Germans chose. At Nimi, the Royal Fusiliers Y Company, a single unit of just 120 men, commanded by Captain Ashburner, now faced an attack by around a 1,000 Germans. Artillery support was provided by the Royal Field Artillery, who were deployed behind the canal, with their 18-pound quick-firing guns. At 8am, the Germans tried to force a crossing at the bridge the Y Company were holding. In the action that followed, the first Victoria Crosses of the Great War were earned by Lieutenant Morris Dees, the battalion's machine gun officer, and Private Sidney Godley, who became the first private soldier of the war to win Britain's highest military award for bravery. Attacking in dense formation, the Germans attempted to force the bridge, and inadvertently presented perfect targets to the well-trained riflemen of the Fusiliers. Trained to fire 15 aimed rounds a minute, the British soldiers put their training into action, delivering a barrage of bullets that mowed down the German troops as they had pushed forward. The pattern of attack that occurred during the battle's various actions can be summarised by two eyewitness accounts from around this period. A Sergeant W. Loftus recounted to the Times... They were like solid square blocks, standing out sharply against the skyline, and you couldn't help hitting them. It was like butting your head against a stone wall. A sheet of flame flickered along the line of trenches, and a stream of bullets tore through the advancing mass of Germans. They seemed to stagger like a drunk man, suddenly hit between the eyes, after which they made a run for us, shouting some outlandish cry that we couldn't make out. The view from the other side comes from Walter Blum, as German soldier, who recounted, Wherever I looked, right or left, there were dead and wounded, quivering in convulsions, groaning terribly, blood oozing from fresh wounds. They apparently knew something about war, these accursed English. At around 9am, the Germans began to shell the canal bend. The concentrating firepower from the British riflemen apparently convinced the Germans that they were facing multiple machine guns, and by 10.30am, Following heavy losses in their attacks, they switched to looser open-order formations, bringing up heavier guns along the straight sections of the canal to target the defending British soldiers. H.C. O'Neill takes up the story in his book The Royal Fusiliers in the Great War, describing the action that ran from the morning until about 2pm when the Fusiliers were ordered to withdraw. The machine gun crews were constantly being knocked out, so cramped was their position that when a man was hit he had to be removed before another could take his place. 
The approach from the trench was across the open, and whenever a gun stopped, Lieutenant Morris Dees went up to see what was wrong. To do this once called for no ordinary courage. To repeat it several times could only be done with real heroism. Dees was badly wounded on these journeys, but insisted on remaining at duty as long as one of his crew could fire. And when he was wounded again, uh, Lieutenant Steele, who remained unwounded, carried Dees out of the front line. The third wound proved fatal, and a well-deserved VC was awarded him posthumously. By this time, as be about 1pm, both guns had ceased firing, and all the crew had been knocked out. In response to an inquiry by Lieutenant Steele, whether anyone else knew how to operate the guns, Private Godley, whose usual job was to supply ammunition to the gunners, came forward. He cleared the emplacement under heavy fire and brought the gun into action, but he had not been firing long before the gun was hit and put completely out of action. The water jackets of both guns were riddled with bullets, so that they were no longer of any use. Godley himself was badly wounded and later fell into the hands of the Germans. That was from H.C. O'Neill's The Royal Fusiliers in the Great War. Dees's actions meant that the Germans were held up by continuous machine gun fire, while Godley's heroic stand allowed his company to retreat under his covering fire. While Dees was to die of his wounds just a short while after the action, Godley was found by two Belgian civilians and helped to the local hospital, and, although he was captured by the Germans, lived until 1957. To the right of the Fusiliers, manning the other side of the canal salient, the Germans attacked the Oborg Bridge and the 4th Middlesex Regiment who held it. Here, two companies under a Major Davy and a Major Abel bore the brunt of the fighting, suffering about 30% casualties as they, in turn, inflicted heavy casualties on the German 18th Division. As the battle spread along the canal line to the west, at Jemap, the German 3rd Corps was now attacking, and a bridge demolition drama unfolded as Lance Corporal Jarvis and Private Heron worked for an hour and a half under fire to bring the bridge down, earning themselves a Victoria Cross and a Distinguished Conduct Medal, respectively. At Turt, further to the west of Jemap, the 1st Royal West Kents were pushed back over the canal. On the right of the salient, St. Gilaine and Le Herbier came under attack. As the battle developed, the British steadily took casualties, and after about six hours of sustained battle, the decision was taken to blow up the railway bridge at Nimi and fall back to prepared positions a couple of miles to the south. The decision to abandon the salient at Nimi meant that the straight section of canal that was still in British hands was now at risk, as the Germans could cross the canal and roll up the line. This section now had to be abandoned, but not until the remaining bridges would be blown up to slow the German advance. Prepared with charges, the bridges would have presented no problems, but it turned out that while the charges had been laid under the bridges, no detonators were available to initiate the blast. At Mariette, Captain Wright of the Royal Engineers literally swung into action, hanging on the girders under the bridge. Wounded in his attempt, he tried again, but was unable to complete the task and was forced away from the bridge. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions. The battle raged on through the morning, but despite the continued assault from the Germans, the British had clung on to their positions. In the early afternoon, the German assault continued, attacking along the canal's straight section as well as redoubling attacks on the canal salient. The British positions were now becoming precarious, 
as the German 17th Division had crossed the canal to the east of the British positions and were attacking the 2nd Royal Scots and 1st Gordon Highlanders, who were protecting the flank. The attack was held off at first, but the danger of the Germans flanking the canal line was clear. Already the men of the 4th Middlesex Regiment were in danger of being outflanked and attacked in the rear, despite the 2nd Royal Irish Rifles being sent to support them. Now, in mid-afternoon, British units were ordered to withdraw, with one company covering another in turn as they fell back on their second line positions behind the River Aisne. This was a perilous moment. Falling back while engaged with the enemy is one of the hardest tasks for any military, and to make this harder, especially for the Royal Irish Rifles and Middlesex regiments, the German forces were already infiltrating the farmland behind Mons. Luckily for the British, as they fell back, the Germans failed to press home their numerical advantage. An advance at this time might have driven the British back in disorder, however the Germans had also taken a mauling in the battle and decided that it was over for the day, even though they now held those bridges that had not been demolished. As the British withdrew around 7 to 8pm, they could hear the German bugles sounding the ceasefire. A captain in the German 3rd Corps surveyed the results of the day's battle and mourned the demise of much of his proud, beautiful battalion, describing it as a, a mere wreck, smashed up, with only a few left. This partially explains why the Germans didn't follow up the hard-pressed British as they fell back. They were physically unable to press on, and were in fact acutely aware that the troops who had been in combat were in such a weakened state that any counter-attack by the British will simply run over us. The other reason that the attack was not re renewed related to the dispositions of the German forces. Von Kluck, realising that he'd engaged in a costly frontal assault with only a portion of his force, as his 2nd and 9th Corps were still marching to the battle zone, ordered his two fresh corps to engage in outflanking operations against the British, with the intention of encircling the small army that lay in their path. Luckily for the British commanders, who currently believed that the German forces were manageable and were planning a renewed offensive of their own, at around 8pm, word came from Joff that the British were likely facing three corps and two cavalry divisions. This put pay to the plan to attack, and Sir John French told his commanders, I will stand the attack on the ground now occupied by the troops. You, 2nd Corps, will therefore strengthen your positions by every possible means during the night. But this command, and the hope of resuming the offensive, was not to stand in its own right. Later that night, at about 11pm, word came that Blonserac's forces on the BEF right flank were beginning to retreat to the rear of the British Expeditionary Force, being pushed back by German forces coming south from Namur. When Sir John French became aware of this, he realised that his right flank could become endangered, and ordered that his army should also fall back sending messages to Haig and Smith-Dorian's headquarters to begin to retreat. Here, Smith-Dorian's novel choice of headquarters, in a grand house away from the main roads and telegraph wires, meant that he didn't receive his marching orders until 3am, and his corps was unable to begin moving until after dawn. In contrast, Haig received his orders via telegraph, and was able to get his men on the march to the south before dawn albeit while feeling regret that his men had not been involved in the battle so far. As Smith-Dorian's 2nd Corps began to fall back to new positions, 
they came under fire, and the opportunity for a clean disengagement and withdrawal had been lost. In one case, this led to a battalion which had failed to receive the orders to withdraw being surrounded, and with the loss of most of its men either killed or taken prisoner. The British lost 1,600 men at Mons, men they could ill afford to lose, but sadly a sign of things to come. These men were highly trained professional soldiers and couldn't be easily replaced in an army as small as the BEF. The British began their retreat after the battle, being pushed back over 200 miles into France over the next 13 days. Men marched day after day, exhausted, some learning that it was possible to sleep and dream while marching. This great retreat, being pushed back by the Germans while trying to maintain the line with the French forces to the east, saved the British army. Without the retreat, they would have been isolated, surrounded and forced to surrender, which would have been an irrecoverable loss. As it was, the British were shaken, with the Sir John French even considering that he might have to evacuate his force back over the channel if things carried on in the same vein. News of the battle and the retreat emerged slowly into the British press, and when it did, laid great emphasis on the heroism and steadfastness of the British troops involved. And there was some truth in this. Six Victoria Crosses, Britain's highest military decoration, had been awarded during the battle. However, by the 30th of August, the Sunday Times published, with the permission of the official press censor, the following analysis. Regiments were grievously injured, and the broken army fought its way desperately, with many stands, forced backwards and ever backwards, by the sheer unconquerable mass of numbers of an enemy prepared to throw away three or four men for the life of every British soldier. We have to face the fact that the British Expeditionary Force, which bore the great weight of this blow, has suffered terrible losses and requires immediate and immense reinforcement. The British Expeditionary Force has won indeed imperishable glory, but needs men, men and yet more men. Over a hundred years later, it's hard to argue with that judgment. During the battle and retreat, the British had incurred losses of around 2,000 to 5,000 men. This was huge by British standards, but a drop in the ocean compared with the 140,000 men lost by the French in the similar period. In fact, the French had lost the equivalent of two BEFs in just four days of fighting. But regardless of the relatively small size of the encounter, the Battle of Mons was important because it was the first British battle of the war and it had proven that the BEF could hold its own against the Germans. But the fact remained, the British army was far too small for the kind of war it was now involved in fighting and the forces deployed in France would need to grow by an order of magnitude and as soon as possible. That brings us to the end of our episode of the Battle of Mons. Um, if you have any ideas for things that you'd like investigated as part of this podcast, please feel free to give us a shout. There's details in the uh, podcast notes of how you can get in contact. I've uh, been involved in interesting conversations about a couple of things which I think will become uh, future podcasts. Uh, as always, please like, share the podcast if you're enjoying it, and uh, look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you very much. Bye.